Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Today, we are kicking off a new sermon series after spending several months uh, in a couple of Old Testament books, the books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah. Uh, and what we're going to do, we're calling the sermon series Origins. Um, and as we're camping out in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So we're going to spend 12 weeks, actually 13 weeks, studying not just the most attacked doctrines of our day, the, the doctrines that are most under attack, that, that secularism is, is waging war against this, that's destroying the church and destroying the culture. But these are the two most important doctrines of Christianity. And they are the doctrine of God and the doctrine of creation. Now, it might seem strange to, to rank these doctrines as number one and number two in most importance because, after all, we are a gospel-centered church, right? You, you should be saying to yourselves, well, Sam, what about the doctrine of salvation? Isn't that important? Isn't that, right? The, the good news of the gospel, isn't that the most important doctrine? After all, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you that which was of first importance. He's speaking about the gospel. Now, as I say that the doctrine of God and the doctrine of creation are the two most important doctrines, I'm not downplaying the importance of the gospel. I'm not tucking the gospel away into a dark corner and saying that that's secondary, nor am I calling the Apostle Paul a liar. But here's what I'm getting at. Without the doctrine of God, without the doctrine of creation, the gospel has no framework to be good news. One commentator named Andrew Sandlin says it like this, if we get creation wrong, we cannot get the gospel right. Without rightly understanding God and his creation, we will naturally, just by default, truncate the gospel. We'll make it smaller than what it's intended to be. And this is what it typically looks like. It's where Christianity becomes about simply saving souls, right? Punching people's tickets to get out of the world and get into heaven once they die. That's a truncation of the gospel. See, the gospel is about cosmic renewal. That includes saving souls, but it's about renewing the cosmos. Cornelius Van Til says it like this. The sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. So wherever the implications of sin are, wherever there's brokenness and, and twistedness and a warped thing going on with creation, there, God's grace will meet it to bring redemption. It's this big, cosmic understanding of salvation. And so, it is our deep desire at Sacred City to get the gospel right that leads us into the depths of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
We are recovering God's creational purpose that is only realized through the redemption of Jesus Christ. One commentator says it like this, man is most full of joy, peace, and hope when he confirms to God's creational purpose in the Bible. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ is designed incrementally to restore man to those purposes. So in other words, the gospel doesn't take us away from creation. It shows us the glory of creation, the end of creation as it was intended to be. So you can say this is really what this series is about. It's, it's about helping us cultivate a deeper understanding of the glory, just, uh, the glory of the gospel. But as we have that aim with this series, there's also a, a secondary um, aim of this series. It's complementary to the first purpose. Right? If we cannot be a gospel-centered church without having a, a uh, understanding, a robust understanding of the doctrine of creation, then we cannot be a gospel-centered missional church without that as well, which is what we are. We, we call ourselves a gospel-centered missional church, which means that we as a church have a desire to reach lost people. And so part of this sermon series is to help make us effective missionaries as we interact with a secular culture. Now, you might hear a lot about this. I mention it from time to time, talk about the secularization of culture. And what we mean by that is that, that times have drastically changed, and, and actually quite quickly things have changed over the last decade, two decades. I mean, you can go back the last 50 years, where the residual Christian values and beliefs that were held generally by our society even among non-Christians, have evaporated. And as those uh, shared Christian values and beliefs have evaporated, with them has our missional and evangelistic effectiveness. There's a reason why the, the missionary or the evangelistic approach like you see uh, in the, the, the Billy Graham era of, of just proclaiming the good news, blasting the good news, of handing out tracts, those, those things are no longer as effective as, as they once were. And the reason for that is, is not because the message is no longer good news or not true. It's because the culture in which we're speaking to has changed dramatic, dr drastically. Culture is deep in the throes of secularization. It's created this socio-religious liberalism. And it can be defined uh, by this. It, it generates a contra-creational autonomy. Let me break this down. A contra-creational autonomy. It means that it, it, has, it has set itself apart from the distinctives of creator-creation um, it has separated any of those, those bounds, that framework for being created by God, pushed them aside and said, we are our own. And, and in this, it develops a kind of self-law. Now in this, this mentality, the, the mentality, the, the ideology of secularization, or we call it liberalization, the highest human good is understood to be an absence of all unchosen restraints. 
That, that's the end. That's the telos. That's the highest good in secularization is to be uh, uh, unbound by any unchosen restraints. To throw off the creational norms, the, the normative nature of humanity and God's creation so that we can say, I am my own. I belong to myself. I belong. God has no claim on me. I can be who I want. I can be whatever I want. I can do whatever I want because I am in charge. I am the authority. I am the standard. If freedom is secularism's highest value, it's no wonder why Christianity doesn't appear to be alluring to folks who are seeped in this ideology. Because the call of Christ fundamentally is to repent, believe, and obey Jesus. Right? It, it seems contradictory. If the highest and the biggest, best good is to be removed from restraints, then for Christ to say, I am Lord, I am King, doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense to them. Instead of sounding like good news, it sounds like bad news. In fact, it sounds like hell to them. And so we as missionaries to this culture, it doesn't mean we just wash our hands of them and say, well, you know, to each their own. We ought to have this deep desire as Christians, as, as people who have been brought into the family of God and sent right back out as missionaries to our city, have a desire to help non-Christians understand how the gospel is really good news. And for them to come to that conclusion means that they must reckon with the fact that being created is good news. To belong to God is good news. And this is why we cannot be a gospel-centered missional church without a robust understanding of the doctrine of creation. So to be effective missionaries to a secular culture, we must hold both the doctrine of creation in one hand and the doctrine of redemption in the other. Both are to be proclaimed. We must proclaim in creation, God has designed us uniquely. In creation, God has given us purpose. God has given us meaning. God has created a normative order for the cosmos. And for us to rebel against that, to reject those things, will keep humanity, will, will, will keep us from enjoying and living the good life that God intended us to live. Right, to reject this reality, to reject God, the creator, the Lord, will forever put us outside the reach of living the good life. So as we engage with the secular culture, it's both redemption and creation because the gospel is about restoring or recreating what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So that, that's a little bit about the why. That's, that's why we're going to spend so much time in three chapters of the Bible over the next 12, 13 weeks. And so let us kick this off with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this is significant that this is the very first verse of the canon of Scripture. This is not an accident that God starts out by saying, in the beginning, 
This is what happened. In fact, this, this cues us into the fact that this is an origin story. This tells us Genesis is, means beginnings. And it's talking about the beginning. The beginning of what, though? What is this the beginning of? Is this the beginning of God? Is this the, is this the moment where God started existing? No. No, it's not. This is indicating the beginning of time. It shows us that in the beginning, God started. He hit, the, he hit the play button. Before God could hit the play button, it means that God existed. That God was in the beginning, existing eternally. Isaiah 57, 15 says that God is the one who inhabits eternity. Past present, future, God transcends time. And so in the beginning, God did something. Now, these first four words of the Bible are meant to introduce us to the main character of the story. This is where, this is where a lot of Christians get it twisted. Right? The Bible, though it is helpful for navigating life, for, for informing how we ought to live, instructing us in the ways of God. The Bible is not about you. It's not. It's for your good, but it's not about you. The Bible is about God. He's the main character of history. And while we are involved in history, while humanity is a part, a significant part of history, all history is God-centered. And so we here have the introduction of history, the, the, the main subject, the main character of, of history. And in this, God makes his first introductions. This is, this is the first time that God introduces himself as, as Moses is writing this down. This is the first time God introduces himself. And rather than introducing himself in the way that we do, like if, if you go back to the MySpace day where you, I don't know, this might be dating, where you write a bio out about, well, this is who I'm about. I love this, this, you know, I love cats. I love coffee, Jesus forever. He's my home, you know, whatever those things are, where you list out all these attributes of yourself. God doesn't do that. He doesn't start with a list of here are all my traits. Here's my characteristics. This is what you need to know about me. God says, here's what I did. God opens up scriptures by telling us not what he is or his characteristics. He tells us what he does, which informs us. It reveals to us certain characteristics of God. And the thing that God has done is that God has created. That's the very first thing. That's, that's one of the most foundational doctrines of Christianity is that God is the creator. I mean, this is the first line in both the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, which we profess together today. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And Genesis 1.1 is not the only place where this is, is proclaimed. It's, it's all over Scripture. I, uh, you go to Nehemiah 9. Isaiah 45, Psalm 19, Proverbs 3, Hebrews 11, Revelation 4, Colossians 1, just to name a few, right? It's all over scripture. It's proclaiming that God is the creator. This is scripture's loudest and most persistent testimony that in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Now the question then is, why? Why does scripture attest to God as creator so often? Why why not just say it once at the beginning and just let that sort of ride out the whole way? Why is it that we need to come back, keep coming back to the reality that God is creator? Scripture does this. John Frame tells us scripture does this because it expresses a foundational reality. There is a creator-creation distinction. There is a difference between God the creator and everything else that he created. This doctrine of creation tells us that God is not like the rest of creation. He's, He's different. He's set apart. He's divine. And creation is a product of God's unassisted, unprompted activity that he desired to create, so he created. God wasn't lonely. God didn't need creation. He was happy in and of himself, but it delighted him to create. And so you have these two separate categories between God the creator and and creation, God's creation. This creator-creation distinction is what Peter Jones refers to as the difference between oneism and twoism. Oneism believes that God and creation are all one, right? Everything is one and the same. This comes from like an Eastern worldview, that, that everything is composed of divine substance. You look at the trees, yep, that's God. You look at the dirt, God's in that. Everything, you look at, you look at your neighbor, God. Right? There's a little bit of divinity in, in everything. He has this worldview that all is one. Where twoism believes that the creator is distinct and set apart from creation. And while God can maintain his distinctiveness as not creation, he graciously and creatively imprints his glory on creation. So creation does have a kind of glory to it, but it is not the same as as owning the same kind of divinity that God has. Now, this may seem like very philosophical here. Let me work it into how this actually plays out in everyday kind of life, in day-to-day life. If all is one, if all can be summed up in one big circle, then rules and norms for life come within that circle. The the, the societal structure, the norms, the framework for society all comes from within that circle because there's nothing outside of that circle to say otherwise. There's there's nothing standing outside of creation that can authoritatively say, this is my will, this is how it must be. If it's all inside the circle, reason comes from within the circle. Now, this produces a fundamental confusion about authority, about what's in charge, who is Lord. If it all comes from within the circle, standards now get imposed by the loudest voice. 
Standards now get imposed by the strongest army. Right? It's a system that's developed within itself that exposes the folly of man. But if there really is a creator outside of creation, a creator that's above and distinct from creation, now we have a twoism. There's, there's two separate categories. And God can stand outside of creation. He's not limited by the bounds of creation. And he can definitively and authoritatively offer standards and norms for creation. The wisdom of God then influences the created order. And so it's no longer the loudest voice or the most persuasive person or the strongest army that dictates what's right and wrong that generates a kind of standard but it's God who is transcendent above creation who determines the nature and function of creation. Now, as we aim to be missionaries to a secular culture, one of our, our, the things that, that we might come to think of is, is that as we're trying to evangelize and share the gospel and disciple um, not yet believing people, we might think that um, the fork in the road between their worldview and our worldview splits some way way further down the road than what we thought. So, for example, like with sexuality, if the difference between a Christian, a Christian and a secular person, they're, they're, you think that the divide happens with what we should do with our bodies, who, who we are allowed to or not allowed to sleep with then we have a misunderstanding of where the fork in the road actually takes place. It takes way, way back at the doctrine of creation. Because the self-rule of secularism says, I can determine my own nature. I can choose my own function. I can be my own authority. We just professed, or we confessed our sins together in our tendency to do that, to try to usurp the lordship of Jesus from him and be the Lord of our own lives. It's where we try to create our own reality to define our own lives. But Christianity says it's God who determines nature and function of creation. It's God who's the potter, and we, as his creation, we're the clay. God designs and designates purpose for his creation. Now, behind these two worldviews, it will reveal what you worship. See, if you have the worldview of oneism, if you can really be your own, if you can define yourself, if you can decide what's right and wrong, the standard, it's going to reveal what you worship. If, if God really is creator and you are creation and you understand that distinct, it's going to reveal what you worship. You're either going to buy into the lie of oneism that you are your own, or you're going to live into the truth of twoism. Now, this not will, will not only determine the outlook on your life, but it will determine what you worship. It will determine what you worship. And you only have two choices. You, there, there are only two choices for what you will worship. Let me show you this. Romans chapter one. The apostle Paul says this. Romans 125. 
because they, speaking of sinful man, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, cre- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. In, in this passage, the Apostle Paul reveals that there are only two things that we get to choose to worship. You either worship God the creator or you worship creation. There is no third way. There, there is no sneaky way out the back door. It's one or the other. It's God or creation. And if we misunderstand this creature Creator distinction. What will naturally happen is our worship will be warped. If we don't rightly view God in the beginning, creating the heavens and the earth, then then we'll drift into creation worship, which is paganism. That's the essence of secularism. It's the same thing. It's paganism. It's creature. It's creation worship. Now, what the Apostle Paul says here, or what he's saying in sort of like a trickle-down way, is that because God is the creator, he is to be praised and to be blessed forever. John Frame says, the doctrine of creation should elicit praise from all of God's creatures. Now, this, this doctrine, the doctrine of creation by itself is enough to fuel the worship of both heaven and earth. Right? That, that, is a, that is a good thing to understand. God as creator and we are his creation. In fact, that's what Psalm 148, we, we uh, heard this psalm and I was at the call to worship this morning. Psalm 148 says, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. So the praise of the Lord, just in the fact that God created, that is enough to fuel worship. But here's the deal. Because we are not as God created us to be, because we are subjected to sin, our hearts are twisted, we're we're bent towards folly, what happens is we naturally are inclined. Since we were born in sin, we're naturally inclined to worship creation rather than creator. We we are inclined to rebel against the creational reality, the creational authority that God has over us. And in this, it's it's an act of decreation. It's an inhumane act. It means that, that we are unable to become the kind of creatures that God has designed us to flourish into being. To deny God as creator is to usurp that authority, the creational authority from God, and try to take it for ourselves. But one thing that we need to know is that that never goes well for us. To try to be your own Lord, to be the standard, to choose who and what and what you're for will only leave you in a place of futility. Now, God 
God could have left us to our own devices. God, God could have given us up to our sinful passions and left us there. As the potter, God has right to, to discard the vessels that are not working as they ought to work, right? You, you, if, if you're a potter and you make a cup and it's a leaky cup, what good is a leaky cup? Toss it out. God has the authority. He can choose to do with his creation as he pleases. But what we see in the doctrine of redemption is that God chooses to redeem us from sin and in a, a glorious fashion. See, while God is distinct from creation, the creator is distinct from creation in the gospel, we see God, the word, putting on flesh. We see God who is transcendent above creation implanting himself, becoming imminent. The eternal, omnipotent creator takes on the likeness of his creation so he can save it from the inside out. See, this is the good news of the gospel. And if you can believe Genesis 1, verse 1, that God can create the world out of nothing, that he can speak and things become a reality, then it's it's only logical then to believe that God can save his creation, that, that God can put on flesh and enter into it and redeem the creation that rebelled against him. Peter Jones says this, it's time for people everywhere to hear that the good news concerns the amazing grace of reconciliation with God, the great other, right, that transcendent God who, while transcendentally different from us, he redeems sinful creatures like us and restores us to personal fellowship with him through the atoning death of his son, Jesus Christ. See, just as, as, God, as creation was God's unassisted, unprompted activity, redemption, too, is God's unassisted, unprompted activity. See, we, we cannot contribute anything to our redemption. We don't bring anything to the table except our own brokenness, that, that we were rebels, that, that we pushed away from God's claim on our lives and insisted on life on our own terms, and all it left us with is brokenness, broken relationships, a broken worldview, broken hearts, fractured minds. But by God's grace, he is redeeming his creation. He's bringing us from futility to glory through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's only when we understand the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of redemption, can we as God's creatures enjoy God, our creator. Only then can we understand the path to flourishing, the way to the good life. Only then can God's glory radiate from us as his creatures. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we are recreated. We are renewed so that we can return to our original function, the thing that God, to, to glorify God. So that we could worship God as creator and be led by him 
into the good life. This meal that we come to partake in this morning is a reminder of that. That God, the transcendent, other, holy God put on flesh so that his body could be broken to mend ours. So as we come and receive the elements, remember Christ's body was broken for you. He put on flesh so that he could do that. His blood was shed for you so that you could have the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't just stop with redeeming your soul. Jesus is working to make all things new. All things in the cosmos are being renewed by Christ, the creator and our God. So let us take, receive, and revel in the gospel reality. Christ is making his creation new. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not only creating us, not only taking that which was nothing and, and turning it into something, but you've worked to redeem that which was broken. You, you work to renew that which sin has corrupted. And while, Lord, we can intellectually confirm that we are creatures, that we are creation and you are creators, there's this tendency in our hearts on a daily basis to want to be our own lords, to take that authority away from you, to say, I can be my own man, I can be my own woman, or be whatever I want to be. But Lord, to do that, it only leads to brokenness, it only compounds futility. So we thank you for the redemption that you bring to us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would work this out, that in seeing your work in redemption, it would stir up a deeper appreciation for the work you have done in creation, that we could live as we were intended to be. That your spirit at work in us would restrain sin that holds us back from the good life and by the power of the spirit lead us into righteousness enjoy you forever. Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.